Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Catherine Gordon, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in North Dakota. Before becoming a full-time therapist, she was a professor for 10 years. Katie has published over 90 book chapters and journal articles on suicidal behavior, disordered eating, and other mental health topics. She is currently writing the Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, Cognitive Behavioral Skills, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Skills to Reduce Emotional Pain, Increase Hope, and Prevent Suicide, which will be published in 2021. Katie used to host Jedi Council Podcast and currently co-hosts Psychodrama Podcast, where two psychologists talk about clinical practice, science, and societal controversies. She writes about suicide and other mental health issues on her website and for Psychology Today. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. All those links will be in the show notes. So today's episode is a doozy. It's a a power pack. I say that about all of them because they are. That's why you're here, right? That's why you joined me again. I'm so glad you are here. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon discusses her three-step theory on how to reduce uh, suicidality. And on every step that she mentions, she talks about the antidote for it. This is a really great episode, and we really get into the the the, the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts, the the I don't the thick of things. Uh, we get into the details of it, and we give you uh, great applicable uh, tools and strategies for working through your despair. Uh, so after we talk about the three-step theory, and then she talks about four different ways to find hope. That's right. Those of you who are struggling with finding hope, something to, to, to hold on to, to, it feels like you've lost everything. Uh, we have four different ways for you to find hope. And then I even share my own experiences with how I use the four different ways before I even knew that they were the four different ways. I didn't even know. I didn't even know. And I used it. Uh, so it's a fun and uh, informative episode. And once again, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly because uh, it's an investment, right? You, you're going through a transition, some type of trauma, tragedy. Maybe he's got a divorce, uh, changing careers, injury, former athlete. He, he can't play anymore. I'm your guy. Now, it's an investment. Leo Flowers ain't cheap. Now, this podcast is a service because I understand that there are people out there who are struggling uh, financially. So I want to make sure that I reach everybody. I want everybody to have access. There's no reason why people who are uh, are more well-to-do or born with more financial means should have access to uh, healthcare and to the the best uh, scientists and researchers and psychologists, and that's why I bring them to the podcast because I, I want you, no matter where you are in the world, or no matter how much money you make or what your sign is, you you know you Aquarii out there. I'm just I'm, I'm just poking fun. Um, I want everybody to have access, uh, but those who need and require one-on-one coaching. Go to thrivewithleo.com and 
together we can get to tomorrow. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Um, I'm excited to have you on, uh, Dr. Gordon. Uh, you're you're working right now on a a workbook, correct, for uh, cognitive. Uh, uh, around cognitive behavioral therapy, but for suicidality. Can you talk about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the book is focusing on suicidal thoughts because there actually aren't a lot of self-help workbooks out specifically geared towards suicidal thoughts. There are for things like depression and anxiety, and often they have sections on them. But suicidal thoughts can occur across all kinds of different mental health issues. And so thought it was important to try to take what we know from therapy and research and try to distribute it in hopefully accessible workbook. And so this really does not link to specific types of diagnoses. It really talks about anyone who's experiencing suicidal thoughts from a cognitive behavioral therapy approach. And what are, when we talk about suicidal thoughts, are there certain thoughts that are more common than others? I think so, in terms of the the types of thoughts, patterns that you might see that might contribute to thinking about suicide. Exactly. I think that one is related to hopelessness. You know, I'm often people will think I'm in a lot of pain and it's not going to get better. I think that that is a common one. I think that when people are thinking about suicide, they're often thinking that it would be a way to get some relief from the pain they're experiencing. And a lot of people think about suicide. They'll have the thoughts pop up into their mind. And most do not go on to attempt suicide or die by suicide. But the thoughts still can come up when they're feeling really bad and thinking, you know, maybe if I didn't exist anymore, I would feel better. And so I think those are the main ones that I tend to see deep emotional pain and the idea that their things are not going to get better. The, what is that pain that we all feel? Uh, you know, I, you know, going through the literature, some people describe it as a psych ache. Some people say it's like uh, uh, being in a sauna What's happening internally? Uh, is it is it generated from from the thoughts, or is there a, a physiological uh, explanation for that kind of pain? Uh, you know, and outside of people who are, are literally experiencing chronic pain due to some type of injury, what is that pain? What what's happening uh, physiologically? If if you are aware of that, that's a great question. I really think that. It can be different for different people. I think that's one of the things that has made it difficult, among many things, to study suicide. I mean, another part that makes it difficult is it's underfunded. Even though it's too common, it is relatively rare in the population. So there are a lot of challenges. So actually, the model that I use to inform my book talks about there being a source of pain, but doesn't specify how it has to be, because it can be, I have had, I work as a therapist now, and I have had patients describe to me that it's a very physical feeling, that they feel almost like they're not having a lot of thoughts go through their mind that they're aware of, but they have a a physical ache that's happening. 
I have other patients who talk about thoughts going through their mind, kind of like the ones that I was just talking about, and others who feel like a very strong emotional urge, the urge to do something desperately to relieve their pain. So I think it can be experienced in a lot of different ways. And that's part of why for this workbook, I, I leaned on this three-step theory because it allows people to explore what the pain means to them and what that experience is like specifically for that individual as you would try to do in therapy. I, I love that. And so we talked about the three-step uh, theory and is there uh, more to it than the three steps? Are there like sub-steps or is that the beginning of, of something else? Yeah, so the three-step theory, which is by David Klonsky and his colleagues, what they did is they did what's called an ideation to action framework. And so they, Klonsky has talked about how being heavily influenced by Joyner's theory and other theories, someone named Rory O'Connor, where they talk about identifying what it is that takes people from having suicidal thoughts to being likely to attempt suicide. And so the first step is, is the person in pain and hopeless. So they're in some kind of pain and feeling like it's not going to get better. According to the three-step theory, that leads to suicidal desire. Then the second part, the second step asks, is, is their pain greater than their connectedness? Now, connectedness can be with other people, kind of with Joyner's interpersonal theory, that there's a, a sense of belongingness and relationship to people, but it can also be connectedness to a type of meaning in one's life, a, a project or a role or something where they feel a sense of purpose. The idea is that if that connectedness is greater than the suicidal pain, then that will reduce their suicidal desire. Whereas if the connectedness is lower than that pain, then they'll have a stronger suicidal desire. And then the third step talks about capability to attempt suicide, also from the interpersonal theory of suicide, but kind of builds on that. The idea is that even people who have a strong desire for suicide are protected to an extent by our strong survival instinct. It, we are kind of innately built to survive and to be drawn towards life. And so the idea is that for someone who doesn't have the capability to attempt suicide, meaning that they're fearful about death, maybe they don't have access to methods for suicide at the time, then they will have the desire but not necessarily attempt. Whereas those who have the capability have pain that's greater than their connectedness and are hopeless about that pain changing, that they're the highest risk for attempting suicide. That capability part is interesting because as we were mentioning before we started recording, um, you know, Dr. Thomas Joyner was mentioning that uh, there might be a genetic link to the capability side of it. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. So there are the three-step theory breaks down capability into three different types. One of the types is dispositional or genetic, kind of what have you inherited? It could be high pain tolerance. It could be a proneness towards perhaps like a stoicism or, you know, kind of a, a low reaction to things like pain. Then there's a second part that's acquired, 
And that can be relevant to life experiences. So for example, if someone has had past suicide attempts or if they've had they've had self-harm without attempting suicide, or they've been in kind of situations that habituate them to the fear associated with suicide. So for example, um, physicians, veterinarians appear to be at higher risk for suicide. And some of that thought is that when you're in the medical field, especially in certain positions, you're more exposed to things like blood, death. And so you have a bit more of an opportunity to get used to those things that most people are not used to. The third part, which is also related to that, is practical capability. And that refers to the knowledge of how to die by suicide. So people who have access to guns and know how to use them, things like that are the, the three aspects of capability and according to the three-step theory. You know, that makes absolute sense because, uh, you know, I've also, I've often told this story on a podcast of, uh, of one of the reasons why I started or named the podcast Before You Kill Yourself is a woman was in a bathroom with a gun over her head, wanted to pull the trigger, and then heard her baby crying. Mm -hmm. And so she's in the bathroom, I'm assuming, because the pain is great. Um, and the, the feeling of, of hope is extremely low. Uh, but then the the second part of your theory, the connectedness, she that's, um, you know, Andrew Huberman, who I had on uh, recently, a neuroscientist, talked about how uh, uh, suicidality is uh, partly a distortion of time. And in that time, that woman forgot that she had a baby and had to feed the baby. And it was uh, hearing her baby cry that she, uh, you know, took the gun from her head and went and took care of her baby and, and never put it back up there again. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it all ties into uh, this idea of pain equals hopelessness can lead to suicidal desire, which we saw. But her connectedness was stronger than the pain and uh, stronger than the, the hopelessness. And so that it's why she's, she's still with us here to this day. Uh, but she definitely had the capability, obviously, uh, with the gun. So that, that connectedness uh, is a powerful one. Absolutely. I think that's a great example. And it shows that in those moments, sometimes small reminders or connection to, to something like that, that's meaningful, that's a reason for living, can make a big difference. When we look at reasons for living, for purpose, I, I think that part of us, we get caught up in needing to have some grandiose vision of, of purpose uh, when really the, the, the little things in life can, can give us purpose, can give us meaning. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. In my workbook that I'm writing that will be out next year, I devote a chapter to meaning, and I use the framework from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about living through concentration camps during the Holocaust and as a mental health professional and what brought him through that and then forming a therapy, logotherapy, completely based on sense of purpose and meaning. 
And what really what I really like about his framework is he does talk about how it doesn't have to be a grand gesture or a huge thing. It can be in the little things. So the example he gives are things like actions that are consistent with your values. Are you volunteering? Are you helping someone? He talks about loving someone or having a meaningful experience. You know, it could be out in nature, it could be through art, it could be different things. And then the third type he talks about is finding some meaning in unavoidable suffering. He makes it clear that you don't need to suffer to find meaning. And if you can avoid suffering, you should. But sometimes you can't. None of us can all the time. And so he talks about, is there a way to look at it and see any purpose to it? And so I do try to, in my workbook, try to get people to think of small things that they can do. Is there a relative they can help out? Is there something they can create? What can they do that that gives them some sense of purpose or meaning without having to be something that seems very out of reach? You know, I, and I usually wouldn't quote this show because it's such a violent show, but there's a show on Netflix called Narcos. And there's a scene where they are torturing a man for information. And they can't crack him. They can't crack this guy. I mean, they're doing all the things that you, as an adult, are just like, this is too much for me. And they go, how are you, how are you able to resist all of, of our attempts? Why, why won't you tell us what we need to know? How can you withstand this pain? And he said, when you are um, doing it for your country, when you're doing it for something bigger than you, you can withstand any pain and at at that moment it was it's a reminder like you said to have something outside of yourself whether it's volunteer work and and it doesn't have to be for country as you said it could be the the little things of doing your laundry taking a shower uh taking care of a neighbor's cat something small like that but it, it was that idea of if you can link your pain to something else or to a purpose or to a why that anchors you here, then you can endure it. Absolutely. And Frankel talks about, for him, when he was in the concentration camps, a lot of people were talking about suicide. And he said, and he had lost family members. I mean, he he lost so much and suffered so much. But when he was first entering the concentration camp, a manuscript he was working on was taken away from him. And he said one of the things that he held on to, his purpose, was that he wanted to get out and rewrite that manuscript. He wanted to help people find meaning. And that project, that that thing, meant a lot to him such that he could endure a lot of awful things and still find a purpose. You know, on the first step, you talk about pain and hope. And, and with the second step, you've given us an idea of how to find purpose, how to find meaning. Uh, are there other steps uh, for finding or for giving a person hope where, where they feel like they, uh, things are hopeless? Yes. So I, what I try to do is I use Klonsky's three-step theory to kind of break out smaller steps. And so with hope, I focus on four different ways to build hope. And one of them is to try to seek help because 
when you when people are in that low spot and thinking of ending their lives, it's it can be really hard to think about things changing or think about positive things or even view positive things about yourself. So one of them is trying to connect to someone, whether it's a hotline, a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, and ask someone else to kind of look at your life with you as a therapist might do and see where are the spots of hope. So that's one of the four. The second is about finding some optimism. And this doesn't have to be a big thing. This can be things like you're looking forward to a movie coming out. You're looking forward to seeing a relative graduate. You're looking forward to something in the future, just some bright spot that you can connect to where you know that your pain might feel a little less bad. The third thing is changing perspective. And so this is not easy to do when someone's feeling suicidal, but that's a lot where the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in because we talk about when people are feeling suicidal, they're often very self-critical and self-blaming. And one way to change perspective is to try to shift that to being more compassionate and trying to find ways to encourage yourself and find ways that you're not excessively blaming yourself for things you're not responsible for, to think about in the future, even though you had a bad experience, that there may still be positive experiences ahead. And then the fourth thing is attending to emotions. I think that it's important, our emotions tell us things. And if you're feeling really intensely uncomfortable and in a lot of pain, Small things that can decrease that pain a little bit can make a difference. So part of what the book does is ask people, you know, for some people it's taking a nap, walking their dog, talking to someone, painting, whatever it might be. The idea, is there any way to decrease the intensity of the pain in that moment to build some hope that the pain is not permanent, that it could fade in the future? Oh, my God. Those are so incredible. I had an incident yesterday where... I was excessively blaming myself. I love that you use the word excessively because there, there's, it's human to blame yourself for things. And sometimes we are responsible for things in our life and we want to hold ourselves accountable. But that word excessive is the difference between someone taking responsibility and, being, and feeling accountable and then someone just berating themselves uh, to, to no end. Um, and so I love that you use excessively blaming yourself. And I was doing that yesterday and I did what you talked about. I called someone, I connected with someone and was like, here's what happened. Here's what I'm feeling. And then they helped me to, uh, reframe. I forget what you, what the third step, how you put it down. But in my head, I, I think of it as a reframe. Um, absolutely. I said change perspective, change but it's perspective. absolutely a reframe. Uh, and so they helped me to reframe. And then today I did step four where I, I realized I was, uh, it was too much for me yesterday. Uh, and I went and got, I went hiking and then I got acupuncture after and I, I plan on taking a bath tonight. So I, I'm definitely clicking through all four of these. And it is, uh, and, and so I, I love it because I can feel, I've been struggling with a, 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 a great depression these past two weeks and, I'm just like realizing it. And so I was like, okay, I got to uh, take care of myself and et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to let the listeners know, like these, 
I think a lot of times we read things and, and hear things and go, does that work? Is it effective? But um, I'm, I'm living proof. You know, I hadn't even had this conversation with you, but as you're, as you're saying it, I'm like, this is exactly what I did, and it, and it worked, and it calmed me down. Just calling someone, just the first step, talking to someone, and unburdening yourself of all the emotions, of all the shame, all the guilt, all the I, and, and not holding it in, th- that was huge. But calling the right person, too, because some people can make you feel worse uh, or just feel unheard. And so you have to make sure you're calling the right person uh, if you are going to reach out and talk to someone. Absolutely. And that means a lot to hear that that resonates with you because you're one of the first people to hear that, actually, since my book is still I'm still wrapping up the final draft. So I am really happy to hear that that clicks and feels like that's helpful to you, those steps. So we talked about the first two uh, steps in terms of uh, pain, and then we got into um, uh, is the pain greater than the connectedness? The, the capability part, um, what are your strategies for someone who might have high capability? Is it, are we talking about like locking the gun in a safe or, um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, putting out like how they put a, I think they put a bridge up or a fence up at Golden Gate Bridge uh, and it's significantly reduced the number of people who, who go there now. Um, but what uh, what are your strategies for the capability aspect? That's absolutely right. The idea is to, even when I do this in therapy, it's a collaborative process where I work with the person to talk about when you're at that high level of risk for suicide and if you have high capability, what what can we do? What feels comfortable to make yourself safer? Because the idea is that for some people, that very intense, dangerous moment where they're at risk for killing themselves can sometimes last for a certain period of time, but it does tend to lessen. And so if their gun is either stored in a safe or the the bullets are stored separate from the gun, the idea is to put distance and time between the methods and yourself. And you can ask people for help. You know, maybe they hold your medications or really depends on what it is. But it really is about finding a way to separate yourself in times of high risk from things that, from methods that you could kill yourself with. And so it has the person in my workbook, I I ask people to kind of work through what fits in their life. And so there's the physical safety aspect of that. And then the other part of it is emotional safety which is something that I added because I think that exactly what you said, you don't want to call the wrong person. So the idea is to really think about who can help me when I'm in this really vulnerable state and who can help me to be safe. Is there someone who will sit with me or talk with me or walk me through something? And so those are things that I think are particularly important for people with high capability for suicide. And, and for listeners out there who, you know, maybe you don't have a large network. Sometimes we have to have the patience of training the people in our circle on how to respond to us uh, in those moments of, of, of great need, in those moments of despair. Um, and, and the best time to do that is uh, when you when you back to zero, when you're back to calm, when you're back to, uh, be, uh, you know, being more level. 
Uh, you know, when you're emotional, it's too late. You're not going to have the capability to really communicate your needs at that moment. Um, but don't think that when the sandstorm has uh, blown through or when the sauna has, has cooled off um, that you're in the clear, that it's done, that the work is over. It, it's, it's when it's gone through and you survived, that's when you have to, uh, you know, shore up defenses because it's coming back around. Right. The, the black, you know, Winston Churchill called it the black dog. And you you have to make friends with it and you have to have systems in place so that it, it doesn't unman you, as Abraham Lincoln would say, uh, when it comes back around. So if you have only a few people in your life and they don't seem to be able to communicate, then you have to teach them what it is you want them to say or what you need from them. So that next time you are in despair and you call them, they can. Uh, gift you with the with the right uh, emotional needs and responses. Um, that, that's right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think forming a crisis plan in a time of calm, including like you're saying, being able to ask for what you need is, is crucial. What what got you into this line of work, Dr. Gordon? Well, I went to Florida State University as an undergraduate, and I was interested in psychology for a long time. My dad is a marriage and family therapist and my mom was a nurse. And I think that I just grew up around people who are trying to help others. And I have a kind of blood phobia. So I thought I'll, I'll do psychology. That's of interest to me. So I was very lucky as an undergraduate to participate in kind of research assistance in Thomas Joyner's lab. And at the time I was interested in, in studying depression. I had friends who struggled with it. It was pretty common. And I was really interested in learning more about it. But as I worked in his lab, I, I got interested in eating disorders and suicidal behavior and learned that less people at the time were researching those. And I really, since then, since that influential time, I, uh, during my undergraduate career, I, I got so interested in that that I went to graduate school at Florida State University and was lucky to work with Dr. Joyner again and continue work on suicidal behavior. So it really just struck me as there's a compelling need for something very understudied and yet is related to a lot of suffering. You know, I, I want to uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it, it brings up a few questions. One is when I think about the third step, the capability part, and you, you said part of it is dispositional, uh, meaning that you it's part of uh, inherent to who you are or something you're, you're, you're kind of born with. I would imagine is that is there a, or is that in reference to like uh, cortisol levels or how stressed your mom was during birth? or, um, you know, serotonin, things like that? What, when we say dispositional, what's happening in, inside? To my knowledge, I don't think that we currently know at that level, but it's possible that, that it's just me that doesn't know at that level. But what, what we do know in terms of there being some genetic component has come from behavioral genetic studies where people look at, for example, one way that it's done is looking at identical t twins who share 100% of the same genes and fraternal twins who share about 50% of the same genes. And if you see similar levels of capability in 
more similar in identical twins, say, versus fraternal twins, then that suggests that there is something about the genetics. In terms of the specific genes and how that system works, I don't know that we know at that level of detail. I, I don't, unfortunately. I got it. The, in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy and treating suicidality, are, is there anything else from the, the book that we haven't discussed that you feel like uh, listeners need to know and be aware of? I, I just think that we kind of talked about this a bit, but self-compassion and acceptance is part of it too, because as a, I was a professor for 10 years, and then I now do almost full-time therapy and have for a little over the past year. And the thing that I notice in working with people who struggle with suicidal thoughts is the way they talk to themselves is just can be so cruel and they're not doing it on purpose. Sometimes they grew up listening to that from a parental figure, or sometimes not. It, they had maybe someone else in their life that talked to them that way. And I actually think it's very hard to make any kind of change by tearing yourself apart. I think that it feels like that should help motivate you to make changes in your life. Like if you call yourself lazy, that'll motivate you to start exercising. For some people, I'm sure that happens. But for a lot of people, they feel a lack of confidence. They feel overwhelmed. They feel defeated. And so that just that change of how people approach themselves, I think, is key to the other steps where you're taking responsibility for the things you're responsible for. But you're also accepting yourself in a way that you're able to step back and kindly guide yourself towards changing your life and making changes in the world versus the shame that comes from just criticizing or say, why can't I step out of this? Why can't I just stop thinking this way? That's a trap that I often see in therapy. And once people can learn how to adjust the way that they're processing information about themselves, I see a change in their sense of just how they feel, the intensity of their negative emotions, their sense of motivation that they can try new things and that they might work versus feeling like they're destined to fail. Yeah, there's a difference between uh, pushing yourself and encouraging yourself and, and shoving yourself, I, I, would, I would imagine. Um, and just depending on how you, we were raised, I, I, I think that that affects uh, w what mode that we, we choose. Um, and that can be a, a tough cycle to break uh, for a lot of people. Does, does self-talk work? And how does it work and how doesn't it work? It's a good question. I think for some people... This is one of the things that I, I've really learned from doing therapy is that different things work for different people. And there's a bit of a trial and error process for it. There are some people where they notice big changes when they just have their feelings. Instead of criticizing their feelings, they notice them and try to attend to them. There are other people who it's more about sometimes physically engaging in things. So when they're feeling bad, going out and doing a behavior that makes them feel better about themselves. So if they're feeling like they're not helping others, going out to help others, 
that can be more powerful than trying to change the self-talk. There are other people who simply find that being able to disconnect from the self-talk a little bit, be more in the moment. So they might have those self-critical thoughts, but they can learn to not pay as much attention to them or not put as much weight on them. You had Dr. Stephen Hayes on talking about acceptance and commitment therapy and diffusion techniques. And so that's another strategy that people can feel less fused to their thoughts. So I really see there are different possibilities. And the important thing is just finding the thing that works for you in that moment. Yeah, that that completely makes sense. It's almost like food, right? Where uh, some people, uh, chicken, uh, like I can't eat chicken. It just destroys my stomach. But other people can eat chicken and it's not a problem. So I would imagine uh, you have to figure out what works for you, even in the the modality of, of natural, of, you know, going for a walk outside. Like how much sun do you need versus someone else? Or how much social connection do you need? Because if you're an introvert versus an extrovert, you might need more time to yourself versus feeling more connected to other or being physically connected with other people. So it really is about, uh, you know, knowing who you are and what works for you. That's right. And that's the acceptance piece of it that, I hear people in therapy say things like, I just wish I didn't care so much about what other people thought about me, or I wish I was the kind of person that just could do daring things and not be afraid. And sometimes it's more helpful to say, well, I am a person who cares what people think. Well, I am a person who is more afraid. That doesn't mean that I'm going to hold myself back from the things that are important to me. It just means that it takes me some extra steps more than another person who's built a different way. And so that's kind of what I mean by the acceptance piece of it is once you recognize how you are, and instead of just trying to push yourself to be different, you can instead say, I I can find ways to respond to this. I can find tools that work for me so that I can do the actions that I care about. I, I love that. That is so true. I you know, Mondays, I'm, I'm, I do a, so much work from like 5 a.m. to almost uh, 8 or 9 p.m. And then I find on Tuesdays, I'm, ex- I'm completely exhausted. And I thought I could just go, you know, day to day to day working those kind of crazy hours. Because I was like, I should be. Everybody else seems to be doing it. And it doesn't work for me. So you're right. It's about saying, recognizing, I think part of it is, recognizing we're all characters in in one play and you can't have a great play or great movie or great tv show if everybody's the same if everybody is fearless is if everybody uh you know uh is extroverted or introverted well why we love movies tv shows books is everyone's so different and it's the differences that complement each other and that keep it interesting Right. And uh, so if we look at it and zoom out a bit more and look at ourselves as uh, I, I think, was it Shakespeare? You were quoting people, all the world's a stage and yep. we're merely characters or something like that. Mm-hmm. The uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, last thing uh, you talked about uh, disordered eating and we know that there is a pretty strong link between especially anorexia and uh, suicidality. Uh, is there a specific reason for that or, um, or is it, 
you know, have they, has that been unfounded as of recent? It's an interesting question. When I was a professor, I did research specifically looking at overlap between eating disorders and suicidal behavior. And there are other people have done great work on this, uh, colleagues of mine from grad school and also Joiner's lab, April Rose Smith and Tracy Witte have done great work in this. And what there have been different pathways that have been identified. Uh, Jill Holm Denoma is another person who's done work on this. They have found that it seems like with anorexia, there are a few different things. One is there can be great isolation. I think that I worked in Chicago for a year and I was treating people, primarily people who had eating disorders. And one thing that I noticed about people who had anorexia is that often they felt pressure from their loved ones to gain weight and seek help. And sadly, because of the disorder they were struggling with, they wanted to push people away because that was their greatest fear. So I think there can be isolation and loneliness in that. I think that the second part is that people who struggle with eating disorders, that's another area where we just need a lot more research and, and continue to work on treatment in that. We have some good treatments, but we need to get even better. So people who are in treatment, and if they're not getting better or it's expensive because their insurance isn't covering it, they can feel like a burden on their family. And they might feel like their family would feel better if they were gone. So I think those are part of what leads to that desire for suicide. And then there's also been some research suggesting that if you're someone who can, through anorexia, is facing down the drive for to eat and who is starving themselves, exercising when you're in pain, doing things like that, that that might increase the capability or it might happen to people who are already have kind of a high pain tolerance that allows them to do things like that. So I think that there are different pathways that may be connected there, both from a perspective of feeling isolated and a burden on others, but also having a higher capability to die by suicide. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. Can you give us one other, because it is a workbook uh, that you are uh, publishing. Can you give us one other exercise for people out there who are struggling with their mental health right now, uh, something that they maybe should be doing daily or weekly or monthly or, uh, you know, just as a touch-up? Yes, I, I think that one thing that we talked about in the first step that I think appears throughout different types of approaches to suicide prevention is that idea of hope. So there is an exercise. I didn't design this, but I did describe it in in my workbook called a hope kit. I've also seen it called other things like a survival kit or a hope box. And the idea is that you can take reminders and either create a physical box or a file on your computer or in your phone. And in that, you can put in your reasons, reminders of your reasons for living. So it could be pictures of relatives, family, whatever your reasons for living are. It could be trips that you plan to take. And then secondly, to put things that soothe you when you're in intense emotional pain. So maybe a lyrics from your favorite song, um, a reminder to watch a TV show that you like, something that 
attends to that emotional pain, but also reminds you of things that you might feel optimistic about in the future and and have meaning in your life currently. So that can be one thing that can help through tough times. And like you said, it's to kind of assemble it in a state of, it doesn't have to be complete calm, but so that you have it so when you're in crisis, you can turn to that and have access to all the things that are personally meaningful to you. You know, uh, David Goggins, uh, he's a former Navy SEAL, and he just wrote a book, uh, you can't hurt me because he had been abused uh, so much as a child and even part of his adulthood. And he calls it a, a cookie jar. He said, you know, in those moments where you, you feel like you feel despair, like you can't move forward. He was like reaching your cookie jar and your cookie jar is, is filled with all those things that you have accomplished and what you have done. And uh, and it could be quotes and from other people um, because it going back to the whole time thing and, and distorted thinking, you know, when we are in despair and, and feeling pain, we, we have such a narrow vision. We forget how much we've accomplished, what we've done, the good uh, that people have done for us, the ways that we're not a burden, the ways that we uh, uh, lighten the load for other people. And, and we kind of take it for granted and just think, oh, no, of course I'll remember that. We won't. Not in the moment, not when a sandstorm hits. It, it's blinding. You can't see two feet in front of you. It, it narrows your view. So if you have that, that, that hope jar or that cookie jar, or whatever you got to call it, a shoebox, whatever it is, uh, keep it. You know, it's, it's one of the, uh, the beauties of uh, you know, having a journal. But even, even a journal, you need something visible. Uh, you know, create a dry erase board. Uh, of, of the things that you've accomplished, buy certificates and, and post it up to remind yourself of, uh, of the, the deeds that you've done and the things that you, you want to accomplish because uh, your brain plays tricks on you. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon, is there anything that we haven't shared or discussed that you feel like the listeners should know? Just that... I think suicidal thoughts are very difficult. And if you're suffering and struggling with those, I hope that you find the help that you need. And I certainly hope that this workbook is helpful to you when it's out next year. Yeah. What month will it be available? The estimated is July, but not totally sure yet. All right. So look out for that. And I'll, I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes of the suicidal thoughts workbook, cognitive behavioral skills, to reduce emotional pain, increase hope, and prevent suicide. Uh, this was so valuable and, and just in time for, as we all know, September is suicide. Uh, is it awareness month or prevention month? I, I don't know what the, how they label it. but um, I've seen both, so I think either is okay. Okay, <laughs> all right. So uh, we'll, we're definitely going to air this episode uh, sometime this month and Dr. Katie Gordon, I thank you. And last question I ask this of all my guests, as you know, because you've listened to three episodes. Uh, I always imagine there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Dr. Gordon? I'd say I am I'm so sorry that you're in so much pain right now. And I hope that you can think about some way 
to reach out to someone, whether it's 1-800-273-TALK or someone in your life, a therapist, a friend, a neighbor, to help you through this time. It's not about thinking about every single thing ahead. It's just thinking about right now, what can you do to get through this moment? Is there something to look forward to? Is there something that can soothe your pain? Find that one thing and please hold on because your life is so valuable. Thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. And thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the other numbers that are listed in all of the shows. Uh, there are international numbers you can call, you can text. There are groups, there are online groups, there are Facebook groups. There is someone out there who is ready and willing to hear your story and walk with you, be your ally, be your friend, just sit with you. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. From yours truly, let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast, and I know you're reaching so many people this way.